Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. It's been a little while because there's not really any basketball taking place, but that doesn't mean we can't check in and talk about fun old historical things. And And I wanted to continue talking about historical stuff this summer and have been lucky enough to corral in first-time guests on the show, Mike Prada, formerly of SB Nation. He now has Prada's Pictures, which I highly recommend to anyone who likes history, basketball, learning about the game. And the man once described Clyde Drexler as having a quirky, strange little basketball game. So, Mike, (laughs) welcome. Well, now I know you've been listening the podcast. So thank you. Thank you for having me. This is uh this is exciting. It's you know what one of the great things about basketball history is that when there's no basketball on you can always go back and reanalyze stuff that happened 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. It's like what's beautiful about this sport. And it all connects. That's that's my love of history is constantly kind of refeeding new perspectives of the present for me. I, I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, and that's totally how I feel. But what's interesting, I think, about basketball, and I think the reason you, we, we're on this pod together to talk about a certain team that I think represents a real demarcation point, is that the game itself really has changed a lot since, say, the 90s and 80s. But if you're smart enough and you're nowhere to look, you can see the common patterns just re-evolved differently nowadays right. versus what it is today but I, I do think that the sport has changed so much in the last 20 years in ways that I mean I follow other sports but I don't think other sports have changed as dramatically as basketball and yet you can still go back and see stuff that is interesting to think about for the future uh, and sort of foreshadows where we've how we got to where we are now I, I don't I don't think it's totally unprecedented uh, you know sports when they grow they kind of follow this and a lot of industries, they follow this kind of like S-curve where it's slow at first and, you know, Naismith invents the game in the 1890s and it takes 40 or 50 years before there are even like pro leagues and things like that. And then the game really takes off uh, and it starts going steep up this S-curve before kind of maturing. And I think a lot of people thought, oh, well, basketball followed that path. And yet in the last just what would you say, like the last five to seven years, the evolution of some of the concepts has been incredibly rapid again, which is incredible in that life cycle. Yeah, I would say 2005, the hand-checking rules was like wave one. And yeah, the last, I mean, even the last three or four years, I mean, I'm not sure when you're posting this, but um, I have a piece I'm working coming out soon on 538, uh, which talks a little bit about how, I mean, as recently as 20 years ago, almost half the shots attempted from 19 feet or beyond were two pointers. Yes. Now it's like 8%. You know, hmm. as recently okay. as as recently as 12 years ago it was like a, about a 60 40 65 35 split there. Wow. And now it's like if you're shooting a jumper you're shooting a three and that just speaks so much to how much the game has changed so rapidly. And even like the number of long 19 plus foot two pointers made in a game this year is half of what it was five years ago. I mean, it, it really is remarkable. I don't think people really properly process how much the game has changed even in the last five years since really, even since the Warriors burst onto the scene. Um, it, it really is remarkable. And I don't, I don't think we, maybe the pandemic has given us a chance to realize this, but 
I agree with you. It, it's the change has been more rapid in these five years than anything I can remember. We did not talk about this before recording, but I have pulled those exact same stats almost. I don't know if it was night. I think it was 15 shots outside 15 feet that I was looking at that were twos or threes uh, for something Mm -hmm. else that I'm working on. And yeah, just the exact same pattern, of course, wherever you draw the demarcation line on the court, all of those shots have been replaced by threes. To me, I see it as like, and I alluded to it, we see it in other sports. Uh, Curling, for instance, had like the same strategy for like 300 years and then someone else whether it was a rule change or the broom technology improved you know you know curling with the with the ice and sweeping. yes yes yeah i don't know the strategy as much as you do clearly <laughs> i'm really i'm really giving away my northeast roots here um yeah when you have a big curling tournament it's called a bonspiel perhaps my favorite part of uh curling but that's for another that's for my thinking curling podcast that i'm, I'm working on on the side um, but anyway, I digress. Like we do occasionally see this kind of pattern. And I think in basketball, the, the singular force behind it is a rule change that joined the NBA in 1980 that wasn't really properly realized for about 30 years. And all of the ramifications that come with realizing that that have now been hacked at what feels like light speed. And it, yeah, you look at those numbers. It's really like the last three to four years, right? Yeah, you're talking, of course, about the invention of the three-pointer. Yes, yes. The well, the Just so everybody is clear, or the addition of the three-pointer to the NBA, right? Because it, it was in the ABA. Yeah, it was. It was first put in so, in the ABL in 1961. That's how long it took to get to the NBA. Yeah, I would say there's a second one that I, I mean, there are a couple. I think that's a huge. The the three-point line just it took. It's crazy to me now watching some of these games. And I have a theory as to why it's happened this way, but it is really nuts to me that you watch these games in the '90s, and I don't think they may as well be playing as if the line doesn't exist in some of these cases, especially in the '80s. Um, it really is remarkable how long it took them to pick up the line, and I think one reason it took a long time is that there are two other rule changes that I think you go along with it. One we've talked about the hand checking rules in 2005, which. Now what it meant is if you want to play one-on-one defense, you need to be able to slide your feet. You can't just use your hands. And so to be able to beat that kind of defense, the more space you have, the better. Best way to get more space, three-point line. The other one that I think is really significant, and I don't know if it happened all in one swoop because I think there were sort of gradual relaxations of this, is the illegal defense rule. Yeah. You know, once you got I, – I watch whole games and it's – honestly, it puts me – I don't know if you, you're a poker player or you play poker or not, but it puts me on so much tilt to watch the illegal defense rule in the 90s. It was such a – it just took away so much complexity of the game. And once you got rid of that, it opened up so much more stuff where now you actually needed to space the floor for your best players in a way that you didn't have to before. Right. And you know, those are the – I think in conjunction with all that, suddenly once people started to grasp – the effect of all that. And once I, I guess sort of there's this generation that grew up shooting threes, which I think is another crucial element. Um, then that's when the game changed. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's it. I think it's the combination of those things where you've got the extra point for the shot. You've got space on the court and you alluded to it in the, I, I confess, I didn't realize you rebooted this podcast. I've been getting some of the Praetis pictures and keeping track of some of the awesome stuff 
you've done this summer on the sauna. And then I said, wait a second, one of these is a podcast. And so I was listening to it uh, before we recorded. And, you know, you alluded to this idea of like basketball kind of starting to strategically look more like soccer. Uh, And I think we're seeing this even in uh, American football in the way space is being used and stretching out space and not being so brute force about optimization, right? Like, hey, it's if, if getting near the basket is better, then everyone go near the basket and we'll just ram it in as much as we can. You know, it's like the understanding of cutting, leading, opening into space, creating space to get to the most optimal court place on the court. I think all those things have worked together to make a change. And you're going to argue today, I think, that one team has been more responsible for that than anyone else, right? I am. Um I think that the, and I think specifically one version of one team. I don't know how much you want to foreshadow or want to get into well, it now, but let's hold it. Let's hold it because all right. So one version of one team, <laughs> I think, really was like sort of the the prototype for this transformation. Let's say, and, and we'll tease that because I think we want to get to some of the other. The, the idea here, the conceit of this, is that we want to talk about some of the most influential teams ever, and. I'm in your corner, and then I'm not sure we can come up with one more influential than this team we're alluding to, but certainly I have some other candidates that I think historically have been pretty influential, and I think you do as well. So I'm open to doing this however you want. Do you want to run through what you had? Do you have a ranking in your head? Do you just have teams you want to rattle off and discuss? How do you want to go through this? Um, And if you want to save the actual reveal until later, let's go through, I guess, what... I don't have a ranking, but maybe like some teams that I think would pop to people's heads immediately. Perfect. As like influential teams. And the first one that I think is worth discussing is the Celtics of the 60s. They're they're at the top of my list as well. You know, they won so many titles in a row. uh, It seems like they, it would be crazy that they're not the most influential team ever, uh, given everything that happened. So I think we probably should talk about what made them influential and, you know, how I would say they're probably the number two team on this on this list behind the team that we're going to talk about later. So the thing that I had for like the big standout for me, the takeaway that I have as my number one bullet point on the 60s Celtics was speed and just this idea yeah. of the fast, that, that concept, and you alluded to this, right? It's not always the exact same version, but that concept of when can I unlock speed? When can I counter strike? if you will. How do I integrate that with my players and my system? With Boston, it was, you know, Russell, center. Re- they literally were obsessed with rebounding in the 60s and 70s. If you, you can't read a basketball article from the 60s and 70s without discussions of the board men and the critical tasks of cleaning well, the there board. There are a lot of rebounds available. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there were many, many rebounds available. And, you know, okay, so we'll have our big grab the rebound, fire an outlet, and start the fast break. And that was literally mimicked, you know, or more closely mimicked back then. But it's the idea is still carried through forever, basically. Yeah, I think maybe a slight. I would phrase the same point, maybe slightly differently. The thing that I think stands out by the, to them is that they were the first team that really understood the concept of how to use your defense to power your offense. Mm. So there were other teams that tried to run and play fast, but the element tying it all together is that Bill Russell would create these deflections, these rebounds, these quick outlets, all these sorts of unpredictable ways that a fast break could start. 
and that allowed everybody else to run. So what they really did, I think, is that they converted. I mean, now it's like just sort of an obvious axiom. Like you can't run unless you have the ball, you know, with if you get if you force a stop, uh, particularly nowadays. And I think maybe it sort of faded for a while and now it's come back. This idea that you run off missed shots, that you play like in the flow off a missed shot. And they were the first team that really, I think, kind of played like that and made that such a powerful thing. Um, I think a lot of teams played fast in the Celtics era, but they didn't have Russell. They didn't have Russell who was able to sort of be like a possession ender and transition player. And, you know, that Russell, I think the next guy that sort of played like him is someone as I wrote about a little bit recently is Wes Unseld. You know, it's another example of a guy who's the best in the world at converting, changing from offense to de- or defense to offense. And that was the pioneering element of the Celtics, I think, more so than anything. Yeah, agreed. By the way, feel free to push back on me <laughs> if you if you disagree. You've seen so much of this stuff, so that's why you're here. Um, no, I mean, I I think I agree. I just, I mean, they had speed, and I just think, but the element that they had that others didn't is Russell. Yeah, no, I, a way to activate that speed. I th- I think we're in a complete agreement. You've you just refined it um, <laughs> more than where I started. And then the other note I have for them which is more of a philosophical concept that I feel like really stuck for decades. We don't hear about it quite as much today, maybe because of economics and the shape of teams and things like that. But they were really all about the egalitarian approach in scoring, not running too much stuff through one player, having a balanced attack. Um, You know, my dad grew up, I grew up in Boston. My dad was there at the time. And then when I was a kid, all I'd ever hear about is the 60s Celtics and Mike, what like genuinely felt like a fetish with double-digit scores, they would talk about it on the broadcasts all the time. They would talk about it on the morning shows. Hey, we had seven guys in double figures last night. We had eight guys in double figures last night. That philosophical idea, I think, was pushed to the forefront by their success in that decade. Yeah, absolutely. I think the six-man concept as well. Yeah, They were kind of one of the first to sort of think in terms of the rhythm of a game means you don't necessarily just play your five best players right off the bat. You want to have sort of a second wave to come in. Um, what's interesting about the um, balanced scoring thing is I think right now we're kind of going the other way in the NBA, you know, to something that our friend Seth Partnow who has described as heliocentrism, I think is how you pronounce that. Yeah. <laughs> um, where it's like one guy is the playmaker and everybody else is sort of working off them. That's it's funny how we're going kind of the opposite way now. Yeah, I mean that's what I was alluding to in my in my little reference there about like the shape of teams now. It, it's I think there are yeah. e- economic reasons why that makes sense. I think that ties into some of the three point and spacing stuff that we'll we'll circle back to when we get to our our, our reveal of our number one team. I'm not sure any of these teams can take the label as more influential, but but we'll certainly try. Yeah. So what's uh I mean what's another team where you're thinking like if you're a listener to this podcast you they're going to be immediately mentioned that you want to discuss that's not the team that we both think is the one that's most influential. So the next one on my list, I didn't rank them either. I just sort of had these guys that popped into my head and have read about or seen over the years and I think you had this team pop into your head as well was the early 70s Knicks with Red Holtzman. Yeah, I would say another team that um, very egalitarian. I think the other 
thing that was influential about them that maybe was perhaps slightly different than how Boston was, at least at the beginning of Boston's run, is that there was a pretty, there was no lead playmaker on that team. They sort of had guards that traded it off. Um, and it really, the 70s, I think, in general, are very much full of kind of these interchangeable guards forward type teams, you know, that I don't know if you didn't necessarily see at the beginning of the run for the Celtics. So that that's one thing that stands out. But otherwise, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, they're very much following in the tradition of the Celtics with the balance scoring. Yeah. And so they did a few more things that kind of jumped out to me that uh, made my notes when I was going back through them. One of the things they did was sort of this like idea of team defense pressuring the ball. Uh, Holtzman talked a lot about having all five players see the ball. And so he would do stuff that was a little bit more innovative at the time, maybe half court traps, three quarter court traps, lots of kind of trapping and pressuring up on the ball. But that was done in conjunction with someone else having your back, right? If you go back and watch those games, the the paint is like a parking lot. It's like a little phone booth where everyone collects, right? Just they kind of like <laughs> coalesce, like do in the paint. Yeah. And yet the Knicks had a slightly more advanced approach to that that I think probably seeded defensive concepts for the next decade or two, which is like they call it interior zoning, which is basically like switch and help in the paint versus just being there and sticking to your guy. Yeah, and I think there are other teams in the 70s that did that well, too. I think Washington, the Bullets were very much like that with Wes Hunsell. But definitely, and then the other thing, too, is that a lot of those concepts then evolved in the 90s when Phil Jackson took over the Bulls. Right. Especially the trapping, pressing stuff of the early three-peat. You know, the funneling the ball to a certain spot on the floor where you pounce. You know, it very much breeded. To maybe another team we might talk about, which is this, the SOS defense of the Sonics in the early 90s with the trapping and all that. Very much the precursor to that, for sure. Yeah, and you wrote about them recently, or this summer. I've lost track of time. I have no concept of time <laughs> anymore. It was, it was crazily like a few months, a couple months ago. I mean, it really is amazing. <laughs> yeah, how far? How long yeah, ago does it yeah. feel like? Oh, God. Do you know that Kobe <laughs> died this year? That was so long ago. Um, I know. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Rest in peace, obviously, uh, to Kobe. But that's crazy that that was this year. It's 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 been a long year. I, I apparently we're only in July. Years are now like decades. That's the new. You know, forties the new yeah. thirty. It's like years <laughs> years are the new decades. Years are now decades. <laughs> um, a few more things yeah. on that Knicks team that jumped out to me. Uh, one of them was scouting reports and like film sessions. I don't think he's considered to be the first team to do that. I know Bill Sharman's teams were doing that around the same time. And there, there are other teams that kind of got into that mold in the late sixties, early seventies. But I've mentioned this before that didn't exist in the NBA for the first two decades of the sport. And when they started having this idea of like watching yourself on tape, players were very skittish about that. They were not enjoying the idea of uh criticizing yourself under a microscope but i i haven't read anything where the knicks players were not receptive to it because i just think it was part of his whole sort of be a smart player empower yourself phil jackson very much carried that concept through to his teams right like have some awareness of the situation and use technology to be kind of progressive and move things forward 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, that is, I mean, that's obviously a huge, if you think about that, that's a huge influence to the mod, to the game today. I mean, in some ways that was something I really hadn't thought about. I was thinking so much more about play style, but yeah, I mean, game watching game tape is like literally the foundation of analysis now. <laughs> so if they were the first to do that, that's a huge notch in their favor. Who else, uh, sort of jumped out to you when you think of influential teams over the years let's stay in the 70s uh what about uh bill walton and the trailblazers so i I did a bunch of work on them this summer and this is more of maybe a semantic or criteria thing but my my big takeaway from them was man they would have been insanely influential in terms of the league reacting to them if walton never became injured i think there is a legitimate chance they were looking at two, probably three consecutive championships. And as you know, you know, like when you win, the copycats start to follow. Um, but I was curious as to sort of what you were thinking, such an incredible team, the Jack Ramsey, beautiful game team. But to me, they, I just thought they fizzled out. Yeah, I mean, I think they definitely fizzled out. Um, you know, one of the things that was interesting about them, too, is they they sort of pioneered in some way the combination of sort of the skilled center with the brute four-man mm. with think, uh, Walton and, and Mo Lucas. Um, I'm surprised you don't think the uh, Bullets kind of had that going. They had it a little bit, but the, the positions were a little flipped there. Um, Hayes... Hayes was more of a low post scorer. I think un- I think Walton's ability to just play at all in the high post. So in a weird way, like kind of in Portland, the 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 roles were a little more rigid in Washington. I mean, on offense, Wes Unselt was a high post player and and Alvin Hayes a low post player. In Portland, it's very much the opposite. Walton was probably played more in the high post and Lucas more down low. So, you know, I think that was that was one element that um separates them. Um but that's a good point too with the unselled ace thing the the sort of twin towers high low offense right style that became i think a little more popular in the 80s um certainly with parish and mikhail with elijah one and samson uh and all that um but that's one thing that that stands out and just sort of i don't think it was totally influential to be running your offense through a center i mean essentially the celtics did that with russell other player other teams have done that but the degree to which I think Portland was filled with players, I mean, that didn't have natural playmaking skills as smalls, I think is fairly influential, where their five man really is the not just the a great playmaker, but the playmaker on the team. Hmm. Yeah, that's I mean so how how much do you think that was that by the way, I completely agree. Uh I, I almost see that as like the pinnacle of that evolution over the years there was this idea that you know basketball runs around the pivot that's where that term comes from for the center they can catch it in this sort of centralized area and have 360 degrees access to set up teammates which was i don't know what would you say from watching old film like what we would think of as the mid post now there's just like the hub of the offense right and so the elbow the the pinch post yeah the pinch is almost too high i feel like for for the big men we're discussing, although Walton would get up there. Um, yeah. Yeah. But my only reservation about them challenging our most influential teams was like, how, how, how much do you think that carried through in the next 10 or 20 years? Well, I, I don't know if, um, 
I think that this question would have been different if, you know, maybe 10 years is different. But I mean, I certainly see the spiritual influence of Portland today. Uh, I, I like kind of track where you've got Walton as one type of player. And then it kind of goes to someone like Arvita Sabonis overseas was another type of player, a big man who kind of played out of that area to what Sacramento was doing in the beginning of the 2000s with like the Princeton offense and mm. Weber and Divac. Then a step further now to what Denver does with Jokic. I think there is a through line there. I just don't know if it was a straight through line to the pros because Sabonis obviously came over so late that we didn't see him at his absolute peak. Um, but that's a through line I kind of see with the Trailblazers. Yeah, I like that. I think there's there's definitely in some way a through line for that archetype. I thought you were going to go in a different direction, and maybe this can segue into another team that jumped into my mind. I thought you were going to sort of allude to the Walton archetype blending into, in a way, almost like Tim Duncan's role with the Spurs, and then later in his career, Duncan changes his role as the Spurs move to that, like, beautiful game kind of there's the connect another through line again right like how many times can you come back to the balanced egalitarian beautiful game concept where you're cutting passing moving kind of working as this five-man cohesive amoeba on offense and i don't know i think you have the warriors as like the definitive influential team of the last few years but i had in my notes like those early 10 Spurs, 12, 13, 14 beautiful game Spurs versus the Warriors, because I always feel like they seeded a lot of the concepts. What, what do you think about that? Well, I think that may... I don't want to give away what I think is the number one influential team, but I think <laughs> that team plus the Spurs sort of fused into the Warriors. That's how I think of it. Like, in other words, the Warriors clearly were part of this story of the things we talked about earlier with changing shot profile and the way you use movement. And I mean, you know, most of the league has some version of split cuts now, depending on their personnel. But the longer lens pattern in history is you get a transcendent player or two, and other people can't necessarily replicate that style without those players. Like, I could talk about the Bucks or Lakers offense with Kareem in the 70s, but... If you didn't have Kareem, whether it was 1975 or 1990, you couldn't quite try to mirror what they were doing. And I'm not sold, right? Like, you see where I'm going? I I don't know yet if we're going to see a bunch of teams playing like the Warriors versus, hey, if I get three-point shooters on the court, if I move in space, if I have my bigs be more active on screening, if I have more movement just as a team in general, that's the thing that's sticking and having influence on the league. And I don't I don't know if that just comes from the Warriors. I don't know well, if I'm sold. Well, there's one side of the ball that you haven't talked about where I actually think the Warriors are more influential than given credit mm, for, and that's okay. defense. Yeah. And I think when you look at sort of this idea of needing to have five players that could guard all five positions, they're not the first to do that. But I think they were the first to kind of merge that concept with the more traditional Thibodeauian drop defense. And Thibodeau in and of itself is an evolution of sort of someone else of, of different forms of defense. But that I think the Warriors' influence is actually quite significant on defense because while their offense was really remarkable, I mean, to your point, like 
it helps to have a Steph Curry and a Clay Thompson. Like there just aren't players like that. But defensively, I think and, and Draymond Green is an incredibly influential defender. But I do think that the sort of combination of the switchability with the interchangeability of not just like on the ball but off the ball, the ability to kind of play different roles on and off the ball, the combination of having kind of like the clamp defenders like the Iguodala's and Curry's who kind of are on the front lines with the Draymonds that sort of roam around the back. You see so many spiritual new Draymonds with Siakam in Toronto with the way he runs, Bam Adebayo with the way he runs, combined with, again, more of those sort of fundamentally solid defenders. I would say that the Warriors' influence is actually much more significant defensively than we give it credit for mm. rather than offensively. Yeah, I, I love that. I totally buy that. Um, I'm actually now trying to think of what teams were closest to that approach before the Warriors came along. One. Are you going to go? We talked about them. Already. Yeah, you're going to go back Seattle. to the '90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking about Seattle with yeah. uh, the SOS defense. I mean, the very, the very like sort of core concept of SOS, besides sort of funneling people to checkpoints, was switch screens because it's way easier to do that. You know, less ambiguity, and we need to be, we we want less ambiguity in our in our defensive approach, not more. So just switch, it's e- switch these off ball screens. It's easier, and then we can push people to where we want. I mean, that's like very much that's right there in the sort of t- core tenets of how Seattle played. Mm-hmm. No, I love. So, I, I can't make it through a podcast uh, about history without landing on Reggie Miller because you <laughs> you, you did uh, some work recently on Reggie. Um, I'm always going back and I've, I feel like I could write a, a book on him at this point. The One of the things that stands out to me when you go back and watch some of those key 90s games is just how hard it was for teams. They could do it well, but just how hard it was for teams to really say, okay, now we're going to start switching everything off ball as a counter to the way the Pacers played. Because even though the Pacers played like that all the time, the league wasn't used to switching back then. Well, I think another key factor, too, is that, I mean, Indiana in some ways was such a conventional team. I mean, I I think of Larry Brown very much as like the coach that is like the best version of the most conventional version of basketball ever at any given time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like I was watching some old Pistons. I watched like this. One of the games I watched recently was, you know, watch a lot of Detroit in 2005. And, you know, that's a team that had this great interchangeability, but played what I would say was a fairly fundamentally basic style of play that worked very well but um they were they got more interesting the more they kind of mixed it up um but anyway like yeah so that when indiana is playing all these brutes up front the other team is generally playing these brutes as well and these brutes are not good at switching so that explains a lot i mean sometimes i wonder if you know one of the things i wrote about with reggie is like if you you put him with a more modern coach you know than larry brown do we see his influence a little bit more clearly. Whereas with Larry Brown, it's very easy to look at him and say, Oh, he's just sort of like what Dale El- a better version of what Dale Ellis was with Seattle in the eighties or, you know, any of Del the Kerr. other, right. Yeah. Like yeah. kind of spin runoff screen pin down types. Um, you know, it sort of made him seem less um, influential than I think he was. You kind of alluded to while we're on this amoeba defense, another team, in my notes here was, and you mentioned them uh, before we recorded, was the Bad Boy Pistons. And yeah, I, so my notes on the Bad Boy Pistons, I have them combined with the Riley Knicks. 
And I, I actually think the Riley Knicks are a team that are probably underrated for some of those other reasons that we might not think of beyond style, uh, just in like their approach and their scouting departments and the tree of coaches and the influence on that, like grind it down, foul on every possession, sort of the, the bruteness that in a way defined that era of like the nineties and early two thousands. So I do think in a, I do think we could make an argument that the Riley Knicks teams and then what he carried through with the heat are, are pretty influential, but my connection there with the with the Bad Boys Pistons was really about that physicality, but I'm wondering if you think there's something more, maybe something to do with that versatility, that switching, that trapping, things like that. Yeah, I think the physicality is a big part of it. I think the Jordan rules as a concept um, it was pretty influential, and I think very much describes how a lot of defenses evolved to guard great drivers this idea of really swarming his sight lines. Um, I think that you saw that that very much as an influential style. Um, interestingly, I know there's a lot of talk about the way Detroit defended, and I think there was a lot of stuff there. But Detroit, I thought also, you know, they were the first team that was really good that kind of combined like sort of having like a stretch five, but not a Walton S stretch five, rather like Lambier is a floor spacer. And then you build your offense around your guards. I mean, I think in some ways the Knicks had a little bit of that. Detroit is obviously not known for their offense, but I think it was, it's interesting that so much of Detroit's offensive game went through Isaiah and Dumars and very much also they had to evolve a little bit from Isaiah as the one guy to you know, they really beat you at the line of scrimmage on both ends of the floor because they're also setting these deadly pin down picks to free people. And then they had that pick and pop with uh, Lambeer that I think confused a lot of big guys. So there are some interesting influences offensively as well. I mean, I think defensively, obviously, the physicality um, is a big part of it. But I think one of the big differences between Detroit and New York is I think Detroit Knicks were very much more about physicality, I would say, on the ball where they didn't, you didn't have to get into rotation. I think Detroit really funneled you into their physical bigs in a way that was a little, it, it was mm. a little bit different than how the Knicks did it. Um, that's just my read on it. I actually, I'm curious. I, I think what you're saying about the Knicks and off the court um, makes a lot of sense. I, I think on the court, in some ways, the Knicks weren't as influential. It's Detroit because I think Detroit had a little more sophistication to their schemes. Not to say, I mean, the Knicks had some just big, huge, burly defenders that were really effective. But in terms of the five-man scheme unit, I thought Detroit's ability to sort of funnel you into the help and then swarm you in the middle was something that, first of all, you don't see that much anymore. It's sort of now the opposite where you're kind of going to the sidelines. But I think that was unique from what the Pistons did. I thought that was a pretty interesting way of kind of thinking about, I mean, they, they still, still had the best defensive strategy to stop Jordan of anyone ever. And I think that's pretty significant. How would you summarize? I get this question all the time about the Jordan rules and how it's kind of marketed as this like physical bruising thing, but there was a pretty clear tactical component i thought you recently unpacked it how would you really quickly summarize that approach for people detroit's defense versus this like just 
absolute offensive vortex from the perimeter in Jordan. Yeah, I mean, I, I said it then, but I'm not sure the Jordan rules are as complicated as the Pistons made them out to be. I think it sort of was psychologically advantageous to make them seem like they were super complicated. But really, all it was is just swarm to Michael Jordan and don't let him beat you baseline where you can kind of like sneak around and beat all your help. Force him into help, triple team him at certain spots on the floor and make other people beat you. And they, one of the, I think, the huge keys to the Jordan rules was was actually – Isaiah Thomas's ability to sort of flood the middle and then recover to mm. the perimeter was something that I think was really underrated. It was only after once they changed Pippen's role to put him more at the top of the key than, and get rid of Isaiah that they really solved it, the Bulls. So, I mean, I, I don't think that the – I think it was very much just this idea of, like, let's send him into where we have the most people and that'll solve that problem. And the spacing wasn't good enough in, back in the day to beat that. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I'm actually trying to think of a team, speaking of these points you're making about Detroit and their offensive makeup and things like that, I'm trying to think of a team that kind of won with the model of defense first, we are fairly defensively dominant. In the playoffs, they were just phenomenal. And then we get enough offense through like a specific guard or focal point from the backcourt you know the there's been so many teams in the last 30 years that have tried to win that way the one of the ultimate examples is the Iverson Sixers another another Larry Brown say, yeah. yeah another Larry Brown team but I'm actually <laughs> t- to your point about Detroit being influential I'm trying to think of was there one before then uh you know it's it's tough to say because I think back in those days like if you had a great scoring center you generally won right and or you tried to win that the, way. Right. And that was the thing that everybody kind of wanted. It was, I mean, to be building around your guards as your top offensive bucket producers, I think that was very unique, especially for the 80s. I mean, they were one of the first teams that won consistently that didn't have that dominant five-man. Really? I mean, I guess, you know, another team that's sort of like kind of lost to history a little bit like this maybe were like the Dennis Johnson, uh, Gus Williams, Seattle Sonics. Uh, yeah. Um, they, I mean, I think people probably credit Sigma on those teams, I would imagine. But continue. Those, we can we can talk about yeah, downtown I mean, Freddie Brown. Kinda like, Sigma was kind of like an evolved. Lambeer wasn't quite as skilled as Sigma, but they played similar offensive roles, I would say. Hmm. Um, the yeah, team, but it's tough. Like, what, what team are you thinking of? I, I thought you were going to say the '75 Warriors, who, who, yeah, you know, they're they're such an interesting team because of the uh, pre-merger state of things and kind of the parity of the league, and and they were a much better overall front-to-back team in '76, although they didn't make a deep run in the playoffs. But neither of those teams really had any traditional offensive beef in the middle. I mean, Clifford Ray came off the bench. He was a great passing center of the time, but it was really like a Rick Barry, you know, Rick Barry drives this. We've got some other skilled guards and scorers, and let's have more shot blockers at center. I'm not sure how many, if you're not familiar, like from the beginning of time, going all the way back to the Big Bang, till the moment that like, Michael Jordan won in 1991. The rule was you have to have a big time offensive center to win in basketball or you can't win. Yep. Pretty much. 
Um, the one difference between Golden State, I thought, and, and this is sort of where we get to the line of scrimmage, is that for Detroit, their scoring came from their guards, but the play creation was all under the basket. It was all them popping out from pin downs. Um, and where they dominated you was just at the line of scrimmage. And they would set these pin down screens to get the guards out. Their guards would shoot, and then they would just terrorize the offensive glass. Golden State did that in the finals against Washington. That's something I wrote about with, with Unselt. But they didn't. They struck you more as a team that played outside to cut in. Yeah. Whereas Detroit played inside to cut out. And I think that to be able to win that way without a great big guy, I think is such an incredible accomplishment. Um, otherwise, you're kind of have to play the way the Warriors play, where you're using your big guys to pull the other big guys away from the hoop. Um, and I think that was sort of less how Detroit played. It was very interesting. I mean, Detroit's offensive rebounding was just, I mean, it is. I was watching a game they played against Boston in the early 90s, and it's just like, you look at the frame on offensive rebounds versus the frame then, and like everybody on the Pistons is all over the glass. But they, it kind of worked because they played within such a small radius and just dominated. They were in some ways the ultimate line of scrimmage ground and pound team, even though they didn't have a guy who individually did that as a scorer. They just did that with their screening and offensive rebounding. That's one way I see the two is different. Mm. And you, you mentioned, uh, if you want to, say more on the Pistons, please cut me off. But you mentioned inverting things, and that makes me think of another team I had on my notes here, which is the Don Nelson 80s Bucks. And kind of like Larry Brown, I had in my notes, I had Larry Brown has to have an influential team here somewhere, question mark. And so <laughs> and so does Don Nelson, question mark. Um, because in the 80s, there was very much that like, okay, we got Paul Pressey with the point forward thing. So we can kind of start getting a little bit more positionless. We can start looking at skills versus like size and role. Another thing that was indicative of old basketball is like, oh, this this guy stands here and this guy stands. He's a he, he's a fantastic cornerman, average eighteen points a game, shooting in the corner. It's like you know, it was <laughs> yeah. that structured. And Nelson certainly always had a mind to to blow that up. And whether it was the Bucks or some of his Mavericks teams with hey, we're going to shoot more threes or we're going to we're going to play funky small ball and play guys that the rest of the league would play at the three or the four. We're going to play them at five and space you out. And, you know, some of those early Mavs games, you can go back and watch them on YouTube and like they're playing five out basically uh, in some of those structures. So I have no idea where those teams fall in this list, but your comment made me think of that. You know, what's funny about Don Nelson teams and why I didn't consider him maybe as much as I should, is because what's the one thing that Don Nelson was always lusting after that he could never quite get? A dominant center. (laughs) How many times did he trade for or go out of his way to get traditionally great centers after, despite sort of having a team that was not built that way? You you go from Bob Lanier to Manute Bull Mm, mm. to... uh, Todd Fuller, um, I'm sure there's someone in the Warriors I'm forgetting. The legend of Todd to, Fuller, of course, yeah. To like <laughs> Sean Bradley, to Evan Eshmeyer, uh, to Brandon Wright. Not really a center, but you know, you remember that that trade of the We Believe. He'd always have this this unique team and then would try to break it up because he felt like he needed more size. Hmm. I've never I've you never know? thought about that. That's fascinating. Maybe maybe it, I've never thought about it because I feel like all of the things you mentioned after Bob Lanier would probably be viewed as 
failures or wrong turns. But I do feel like that trade with Lanier, I mean, at least statistically, it helped them right when he came over that first year or two. They were really kind of bolstered uh, after he came in. So maybe it's one of those things where the first time he did it, he thought it worked. And then he just kept trying to go back to the well year after year after year. I, I don't know. It's a very interesting point. I mean, he got, I would say that he got Lanier maybe two years too late, and then he got Jack Sigma two years too late. So he had the right, maybe he had the right idea and just missed on the execution. Uh, before we um, get to our, oh, go ahead. No, that's, that's all. I mean, and that's the other, and the only other team I had that we haven't mentioned that maybe is worth talking about is just the Showtime Lakers, just for the Magic Johnson as an influential player and just the pioneering of the fast break. I would, I would say perhaps that they were um, a little bit better as marketing their <laughs> the pioneering of the fast break than actually pioneering it. Um, but I think they have to be mentioned as well. And I, I also really the idea of playing James Worthy as a four-man um, in an era where four-men were so much bigger, using him to open up the floor and run the floor and uh, go at these bigger guys um, was pretty influential, that with Magic. I think we have to mention that team it's interesting they they didn't jump to my the top of my mind but i think they're actually maybe it's kind of like the same thing with riley and the knicks there's more there than you realize he's he's, he can be so tactical that a lot of this stuff just you don't you miss it and then it sticks for a while they were one of the first teams i really ever remember seeing i'm going to spam pick and roll in the half court because you can't stop it Right. And so this didn't really take hold until like 86, 87 when Magic Shot was better and his game was more polished. And but there are just times in the playoffs where in the half court, they're running that over and over and over again. I don't remember seeing that kind of approach before then. And then Michael Cooper, you go back to the six man like, okay, we're going to have this long sort of gangly three and D guy who's athletic who could serve as our backup point guard, but we can also stick him on all kinds of players as a defender. Um, I think he's one of the kind of original three and D guys. Uh, th- there's a lot there happening with the, with the eighties Lakers. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know if like, I mean, the other team that we haven't mentioned that I think has to at least get a passing mention is the, the Phil Jackson bulls just for the triangle offense. Um, but I do think that there were elements of the way Chicago play. I think they were probably more influential defensively and offensively. They just happened to have the best player. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think um, so. I, I think that was one of those things that was hard to replicate without the players. Yeah. Um, but I like, I like your shout out to defense. The only other teams that I had mentioned, and I'm going to try to segue this into our last team, or at least the team that, you know, this is the this is the team that we not sure we can knock off the pedestal. Um, one of them was just Jerry Sloan's approach to his flex offense, not literally copycatting that, but the optionality out of it, the movement, the cross screens, all all those things felt like they took hold to some degree for the next like ten or fifteen years in the league. I had them in my notes, and here's the one that I think segues us to the team that you're thinking of. And that was the sort of Olajuwon Rockets title teams once once Rudy T took over as coach and the idea that, okay, we're going to have a spoken wheel thing going where we play four out, stuff goes into Olajuwon and then gets kicked back out. And the key really 
is having these shooters who can hit threes and punish you. Robert Ory, were, you know, when he came out, he was supposed to be a small forward, but then we're going to put him at the four and he can knock down threes as a spot-up shooter. And just getting into that, uh, hacking that three-point shot, having shooters around a key player and spacing around them to start exploiting defenses that way on offense. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned them. Like, I would probably put them a little bit more in the category of they had the one guy that others couldn't have. I mean, Elijah Wan, as a low-post scorer, with all the moves he had and with his proclivity to using all of them, I mean, other like it's interesting to compare them to, to the Knicks, a, a common foil, where Ewing is used in a very different way than Elijah Wan is because Ewing is – able to sort of play off the ball a little bit better than Elijah Wan, but doesn't have nearly the amount of moves he has. I also think of David Robinson, a common foe, or even Shaq. There was something, I, I think the idea of like sort of this four out um, was revolutionary, but I think it was very much a evolution of the circumstances with Elijah Wan. I, I don't think they're quite as influential as you do. I mean, in large part, too, because before they traded for Clyde Drexler, they weren't a five-out team. They had Otis Thorpe as their foreman. Um, they were – maybe they didn't have a traditional point guard, um, but they were, I think, a little more conventional. Only really the 95 playoff run was really when they were the most five-out-ish. Mm, yeah. I th- or four-out-ish, four I should yeah. say. Yeah. Um, and I just think that the Elijah Wan as an individual with the way he scored, I mean, he was one of those players that efficiency-wise, his numbers would never quite reach Robinson's or maybe Ewing's. I mean, Robinson, I remember the contrast there being Robinson got so many more easier shots, but – when the playoffs happened and those two teams played, suddenly you need Elijah Wan's ability to hit the shots that Robinson couldn't hit. And that was the difference. Um, sort of a very, very early example of like kind of the Kawhi Leonard versus, um, I'm just trying to think of like a wing, wing guy. I mean, you could even argue last year's Kawhi Leonard Giannis thing where Giannis in the regular season was able to get to the basket and get to the more efficient zones. And so he was a better regular season player. And then they play in the playoffs and Kawhi's ability to hit more types of shots won him the game. That's what I, how I view a lot of Robinson and Elijah. And I just, I just think that the Rockets like kind of, that was maybe a little bit more of a uh, circumstantial team, I think, than maybe you give them credit for. That's just the way I look at it. Yeah. I, just to be clear, I don't have them. They were just other teams that, that came to mind. Um, but well, we've teased it long enough. Do you want to finally reveal? Yeah. 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 So I think this team and I'll let you go for a minute on them, but I think I'm glad we did it this way because I think this team encapsulates a lot of the things we've talked about that came before. And they certainly plug into the modern things that we've alluded to that are kind of like staples of the sport now. So without further ado, uh, a team that you think is the most influential of all time, and I'm not sure I can mount a counter-argument. And I, I want to be clear, it's a specific version of this team, not the future versions that were also influential, but I think less so. And that is the 2004-05 Phoenix Suns, the first Mike D'Antoni, seven seconds or less team. The team with a healthy Amari Stoudemire, with Steve Nash in his first year, with his first MVP, with Joe Johnson and Quentin Richardson on the wings. 
I think that team, the biggest reason I think that team is the most influential is that while they weren't the first team to go small or even the first team to try to run, they were the first team where the foundation, the line of scrimmage of their offense was out by the three-point line rather than inside. So inverse Pistons, really, um, where like all the screens, all the action that you see, all the stuff that like kind of creates the breakdown that you're trying to exploit. The Suns were the first team that like kind of put all that stuff happening outside whereas even teams that were more perimeter oriented before the suns it was in the line of scrimmage was still closer to the basket popping out to the outside and then clearing the suns like the real action of sort of what made their plays possible happened all the way out in the perimeter and Mm. nowadays i mean you see it happening 30 feet from the hoop i mean you know they were very much the first team that kind of played that way um where it's not just that they had guards and three-point shooting but literally they use the outside game to open up the inside game and not vice versa yeah no it's such a great way to describe it what's amazing to about this team to me is i think even if i were to come along and say okay some of the nash dirk teams in dallas maybe had a similar thing going on the 05 Suns then have like nine more mega influential things about them that have just become sort of norms about the game. And I think one of them is part and parcel with your point, just spread pick and roll as a thing that you're going to run 75 times a game in the half court. Yeah. Spread pick and roll and transitions threes. Uh, you know, that was a huge to be able to kind of, it's a good play to be able to pitch it ahead, draw defense, kind of put that, third guy in a pick and roll in this impossible position of whether he has to guard the roller in Stoudemire or guard the shooter in Joe Johnson. Um, that element is now like the most fundamental thing in any offense today. It's t- it's sort of, that's the real battle that happens in so many ways. It's that, yeah. that third help defender versus those two elements splitting in opposite directions. The Suns were just, that was everything that they did. Uh, was to try to take advantage of that third guy on the play. That's something that, I mean, again, I mean, the the I've heard often that like kind of really the the first real trendsetters were like Sacramento in the early part of the decade, um, with the motion offense they ran and the fluidity they had and the flair they played with. But Sacramento was a team built around their bigs stepping mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Phoenix was a team built around was just did the same similar stuff, but like totally inverted the other way. Um, and that, that I think was the big difference between the two. And I, I I pick those O five teams over the other ones because I think the O five team had an element, an essential element that the other ones didn't, which was they had another offensive initiator on the perimeter to pair with Nash. They had not just two, three and D guys, but they had a one of those guys was someone that could kind of be a three and D and a secondary playmaker. The same way I would say sort of what Chris Middleton has kind of evolved into uh, from Milwaukee, where he's sort of not he can be a spot up player, but it's not his game. Really, they need that sort of secondary punch that he provides. That's what Joe Johnson was. And the Suns, I think, once they lost him, I don't think they ever really replaced that. And that's the pioneering element, you know, because even if, again, even if you see like sort of these teams now, I mean, even these teams that are built around like sort of the heliocentric sort 
style play. Most of them can't just have pure spot shooters in those slots. You need someone who can make a play off the dribble. And the Suns never really got that back on the backcourt after they lost Johnson. I think that was a critical loss that made the rest of the Suns teams less influential. You know, in some ways, Manu Ginobili was that guy for San Antonio, to your point about San Antonio being like kind of an evolved version. You know, they never had a guy like that after they lost Joe Johnson. Mm. Am I overrating Joe Johnson's impact? I just think he was such a critical glue piece to that that 05 team. I mean, I think the 7 team was better, top to bottom. But more depth, certainly. Yeah, and I mean they had the experience, and there's a lot of things we can we can nitpick there. I think they tried to shore up defense a little bit more and things like that. But the it's a very interesting point you're making because another thing in my notes on them, uh, yeah, the long list of things of three point shooting, uh, pick and roll, transition three, all of the sort of geometric elements that you outlined so beautifully, like the heliocentric team model is a thing and and I did a video on the lineage of this it's something that really started to take off after the success of those teams around Nash but you're you're saying that um I think if I'm following you're saying like that team specifically whether we say Joe Johnson can do this well or not at that point in his career almost might be irrelevant but the fact that they had another guy who could have some secondary thing if you kicked it swung it or, you know, it wasn't always going to be a spot up, at least if it swung to him, he could put it on the floor and continue that Ginobili obviously was phenomenal at that. I think that's what you're you're getting at with that yeah. team specifically, right? Yeah, I think that and also the ability to sort of run a few pick and rolls himself um, to rest Nash. And maybe what I'm really saying is that just that's why I think the 05 Suns team was better than the others <laughs> and perhaps not as more influential. But I do think that, I mean, to look at some of the great teams today, I mean, the Lakers maybe are a bit of an exception, um, and the Clippers may have two guys that are overqualified for this role. But, I mean, in an ideal world, what makes, say, the Clippers so devastating is not just that they have Kawhi Leonard as, like, the fulcrum of an offense unto itself, is that they have Kawhi Leonard. And, oh, yeah, Paul George can kind of do those things when you need him to as well when defenses load up on the primary option. And, you know, that's something that maybe Dallas doesn't have. Um, when Houston was really good, they had Harden as their primary guy, but they also had Chris Paul who could do that stuff. Again, a little mm-hmm. bit different um, because those guys are a little bit more uh, swing shooters. That's why I think of Middleton as like kind of an interesting player in that regard where I think he has taken on maybe more responsibility than Joe Johnson ever did. But the ability to have him shifting between the role of fading into the background, but, oh, when you need me, I'll kind of help out with some of this stuff, I think is something that now modern teams really need because though teams are more heliocentric than ever, they do – some of that is due to skill set, but some of that is also due to mindset. Like you need some players that are willing to fade back and then come forward when you need them, when everything else is broken down. And that's those are the teams that are – often the most powerful, I think. You know, it's not enough to just have one great player and four spot-up guys now. You need one great player, four guys who can spot up, but, like, one or two of them can also make a play for themselves in a pinch. That's what the Suns had that in 05 that they never really got back again. So, you know what's fascinating about this to me is we've we've taken this lens through history here, and 
the O five Suns, all of the sort of ways that they played that push three point shooting to the forefront, spread pick and roll, all the things we've talked about that are here 15 years later that are just have become basically staples of the entire league and to some degree the entire sport um and you're getting at something that to me might be a future influence it might be something that becomes stickier maybe in the next decade i don't know i I think of this year's celtics team as doing this a lot you mentioned the clippers with george and Kawhi. historically you say okay you want Jordan Pippen, you want fire and ice, you want a secondary uh, release valve on the offense. But if I think you're getting at something deeper here, which is the geometry of the court again, I think you're getting mm-hmm. at the idea of if you've got space and you're using space and you run something that veers in one direction, not everything goes perfectly down the middle of the paint, the paint in the court. If you run to the outside, you run one side, you run an empty side pick and roll where it's just those two players over there. And that breaks down, or the defense over-responds, can you swing the ball to the other side of the court and have an attacker or playmaker there that can instantly get into it? Like I said, I think the Celtics are, in a way, like the team that evokes that the most because basically they they try to have three guys on the court that are like that with, yeah. with Kemba and Tatum and Gordon Hayward. And they are very, very clear about like, okay, we've got a side action here. We're instantly swinging it to the other side with some movement. And that is going to play off of itself. You know, I'm, I'm sort of spitballing here, but that feels like something no, that exactly could be it. I, I would argue that it's already happened. And, you know, to your Spurs point, I think, yes, that first of all, yes, that is definitely coming. Um, some of it is to your point, like kind of when one play breaks down, you have to have a plan B, but some of it is also, it activates what like sort of the decoy pick and roll one way to swing to the other right, double handoff right. loop middle. Um, Toronto was so good at that last year and yeah. this year as well. It's yeah. another team with, um, but I, in some ways I think this is why the Suns are a really good prototype. I think of them as like kind of version 1.0 of this because they didn't have that after Joe Johnson if you watched the Suns in the playoffs in 2005 and in future playoffs when they played San Antonio, this was their weakness. More so, I mean, their, defensively was one weakness where you just have Parker and Duncan just attacking Nash and Amari constantly in pick and roll. But offensively, one of the reasons that they really struggled is that San Antonio would play, you know, drop defense. They would stay on the shooters. They'd run them off the line. And because Johnson was injured in the playoffs in 05 and not himself when he came back. And because you didn't have Johnson in future years, that was, that forced so much onto Nash in terms of playmaking that they just didn't have another option. Whereas San Antonio in the playoffs, they could do that with Parker and Ginobili. They had that element um, with Duncan. So in some ways Phoenix, I think was like the prototype that begat San Antonio, which then begat golden state, which then, begets future teams and the fact that it happened for phoenix the year after the hand check rules happen happened so suddenly as well i think that's another crucial element where they were really bad and suddenly really good playing this new way um and they got to such a fast start i believe they they i don't remember i just remember watching a game recently with seattle was also up to this incredible start playing high-powered offense because all those things happened at a certain time, I think it kind of added more potency to the movement 
um, that it was all happening immediately. And maybe the Spurs' success against the Suns and the Suns' inability to win a title sort of slowed it down. But I would argue what really happened is that all that changed the Spurs, and the Spurs are sort of very much the future version of what um, Phoenix wanted to be because they had all those elements with a better defensive big man and another playmaker. And then all that led to the Warriors and all that has led to what I would call now the, now ironically the subversion of all those, those sort of tactics this is what the Rockets do, hmm. which is, you know, also a D'Antoni team. So that's why I think the Suns were so influential is just, they came along at a moment in time with such a radically different style play that other teams were then able to perfect later. Um, yeah. And at the perfect moment, um, why that 2005 team was such an influential team. And I would argue, by the way, the better better than the 07 team, but that's a whole different discussion. Well, we'll we won't leave on that disagreement. I do think the 07 <laughs> team is better. And may, maybe partly because of the point you're making, where I actually think someone like Barbosa could, to a degree, play that role. Like, if you look at the data, they their offense was incredible every which way, you know, up and down. Um, they outscored the Spurs in the series. It was the series with the Robert Ori hip check. Like that was one of those series where I thought two championship teams battled, and I'm not entirely sure the right one came out on top. You know, it's like sure the 07 Spurs were a great team; they're a title level team. Um, but the, the thing I wanted to circle back to because I don't want to I don't want to leave in a disagreement is that the that team that 05 Suns team I think they would have been good just with their talent. But then everything that we've talked about, all of the innovation, all of the change, uh, D'Antoni, the, all of the things you've outlined, um, I think the combination of that completely took the league by storm. And they looked it up while you were going through that. They started the season 31-4. and four. Yep. That was, yeah. you know, and then things maybe cooled I, down, but... Yeah, well, then I think Nash got hurt at one point, which threw off the rhythm a little bit because they just didn't have a backup for Nash. Now suddenly everybody's moving up a rung. I will agree with you that the 07 team had better depth, so maybe that made them better. But I don't think anybody had a better lineup in those Suns runs than Nash, Quinn Richardson, Johnson, Mary, and Stoudemire. Like, I think that was by far the best lineup of any Suns team could ever put together. They were quite good, um, as is everything that you can find on – pray to pictures and Mike, where, where else, you know, like what else is going on in our pandemic? Like where can, <laughs> where can people follow you? What are you doing these days? Um, now's the time to let people know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've got, uh, doing some pieces for five thirty eight. I did a piece on, uh, which, uh, whether Michael or LeBron face harder competition. I did a piece on Jerry Sloan's legacy is the best coach and never win a title. I've got something that may or may not be out, soon on that we talked about earlier um that may be out by the time you listen to us may not be hoping to do a little more work for them um got the podcast and the newsletter limited upside is the name of the podcast and i got some other stuff that you know stay tuned i mean i can't really reveal too much uh other stuff right now but um i'm working on some things well this was fantastic i hope you uh hope you enjoyed it i'm i'm certain my demographic of listeners this is the the sweet spot. It's always nice to have someone come on and, and be able to geek out on the, We didn't get to the 90s Blazers, unfortunately, but we did get to the Sonics. So half, mm. of, half of the great Pacific Northwest. 
What did I say? How did I say Clyde Drexler played again? Oh, let me see. A, he said he, a, a quirky, strange little game. <laughs> <laughs> Just watch, watch his feet when he moves. Yeah. It's very weird. Yeah. Him and Gary Payton is the other one. Gary Payton, like his footwork was very strange. Uh, don't you think that was related to his his bobbling head? That's how I always felt about it that. Might, it might be true. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> the head. What what is like a very clear like psychological concept? Like the head and the face can lie. Yeah, yeah. That that might be true. <laughs> there there are coaches who will teach you to slide, and I I kind of like this idea. They'll teach you to slide, um, pumping your arms because your arm rhythm is related to like the movement of your legs. Sprinters, of course, are are yes. you know, dialed into that. But with Peyton, I think it was his head. Was <laughs> <laughs> wagging the dog. So yeah, <laughs> he was uh, he was quite the head faker. Um, and I, I'm like um, I'm also like watching some WNBA stuff too, like. Uh, I was watching, uh, doing like a game. I do like these sort of game diaries every so often. I'm doing one on uh, Phoenix Mercury, Seattle Storm. And like Diana Taurasi is the same way. Like her head just is all over the place when she plays. Awesome. Kind of funny. (laughs) Mike, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you want to support this podcast, help me make more of these, and all Thinking Basketball endeavors, YouTube videos, written content, historical research, all that stuff, head on over to patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. Over there, you can find a database of historical stats, additional articles, content, Patreon-only videos, things like that. We have a discussion community on Discord that talks a lot about this kind of historical stuff. Again, that's patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. Thanks so much for listening, as always, for listening all the way to the end and things like that. I hope wherever you are, you enjoyed this one, that you are staying safe, and of course, that you are having a great day.